please open your Bibles with me to today's New Testament reading, which comes from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39-53. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of, God, the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out, out, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. This is the word of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we be a thankful people. May we live out our thankfulness of what we have received in Christ by the way that we love God the Father and how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, may this be a time for us to reflect on the blessing that you have given each one of us, not only of our material blessing, but of our fullness we have received in Christ. Lord, may this church be a beacon of hope. Bless us, Lord. May this offering be a token of our thankfulness what we have received in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> if you are visiting this morning, you will notice that we will celebrate the Lord's table. We'll have communion uh, at the conclusion of the message this morning. This is not a Presbyterian table. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the elders of this church. This table belongs to Jesus Christ. If you know him as your Savior, if you own him as your Savior and King, if you know that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your only salvation, then just as you've sung with us, just as you prayed with us. You come to this table with us. We've been in a study in the gospel according to Luke for a couple of years. In the first year, the emphasis 
was upon who Jesus was, his identity. We just confessed in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the incarnation. We believe he's the son of God come in flesh. He was born of a virgin. And the emphasis at the beginning of Jesus' ministry or near the first half of his ministry was this is who I am. That's where you see all of these miracles. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He stopped storms. He raised the dead, made the paralyzed to walk. By fiat, he commanded, and it happened. Only God can do that. That part of his ministry concluded when he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Immediately after that, the focus became on, came, became, this is what I've come to do. This is what I've come to do. And he began to speak about his mission and the cross that he came to die, not to go to a throne in Jerusalem. We've looked at that. We've heard a lot about that. But in these last few weeks, we've been in that last week of his ministry. And the whole focus is on this is what I've come to do. And he's pressing the cross He's pressing on what will happen to the disciples because they completely misunderstand. For the last few weeks, we've been in the upper room with them, listening to the different conversations, seeing what was happening in that room. With last week's message, we came to an end. And we saw him move uh, out of the upper room and move toward Gethsemane. And that's where we are this morning. That's where we're going to be as we look in these, continue to look in these next few weeks. We're going to go verse by verse, perhaps looking at the cross and the resurrection with more detail than uh, we have at any other time. So be patient. We're going to work through this line by line. This morning's message uh, is I, I love thinking about what was happening in Gethsemane and what God was saying to his people and is still saying to his people uh, in that scene. Before we come to this message, let's pray and ask the Jesus who was there in Gethsemane, who's here this morning, let's ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you as your priests, all of us priests. You have commanded us to take your gospel into the world. And we love that, Father. We love being prophets, taking your word out into the world to our families, to our neighbors, to our friends, to wherever we are, in school, in the fields, bringing the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ to those places. But, Father, you've also called us to be priests, to come before you for the world around us. and. On the Lord's Day morning, Father, for the only time during the week, we come together as a body of priests praying for the world around us. Our Father, this morning, uh, we pray as always for Billy Griggs and for Jim Bennington. We pray that you would give them strength for these days. We thank you that Billy is here this morning. We thank you for how you sustained him and kept him all of these years. And we pray that, Father, you would give him a real vision of the future, a real vision of the glory that's been prepared for him, the place that's been prepared for him. We pray that you would give Jim and Billy the strength for this time. 
physical strength and that spiritual strength of soul. Our Father, <clears throat> we thank you that John Leake and Carol Leake could be here together this morning. As they, Father, are preparing for this move, we pray that you would bless every aspect of it. We want to pray that, Father, their house wouldn't sell. We want to keep them here. But we know that you've called them to another place. And so we pray that you would bless in the selling of their house and taking care of the details that need to be accomplished. We pray that you would continue to bless them in every way. We pray that you would provide a, a church there for them that will be a blessing to them and to whom they will be a blessing. Our Father, we pray for the family of Glenn and Natalie Cofield this morning. Our Father, we cry out for the pain that Natalie has to be going through. And Father, even now, even though it seems senseless to us, and in one way it, it was, but Father, we know it took place in your hands, that you're sovereign, and you've promised in your word that you will use even this for good. Our Father, we pray that you would these next few days and weeks and months. We pray that you would wipe away the tears and bring comfort to Natalie and the boys that they thought could not happen. That was just beyond imagination. So bless them. Now as we open your word, we confess once more that John Sartell is not able to teach so it will make any difference in our lives. But you're able to speak and change us from the inside out. Father, those of us who have been changed, cry out that you'll continue to change us, continue to grow us by the power of your spirit. We pray that, Father, you would change this morning, maybe some people for the first time. Oh, Father, it's only by your power that we will hear and be changed. Thank you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Faithfulness under brutal pressure. As Christians, when we think of faithfulness, at least I do, when I think of faithfulness, it's in a convicting way. I usually think, am I being faithful? And many times, like you, I come to the end of the day and I have been faithless. It, it, my life has resembled more a lack of faith than it has a real, genuine, authentic, powerful faith. Usually, when I think of faithfulness, next after my faith, I may think of God's faithfulness to us, Jesus' faithfulness to us. But this passage causes me to see the faithfulness of Jesus in another way. I usually don't think about, I usually take his faithfulness to his father. I take it for granted. His faithfulness to his plan, his faithfulness to his calling, I, I take that for granted. Well, here you see, you see his faithfulness under brutal, brutal 
pressure. From the profound events of the upper room to the nadir, to the depth of pathos in Gethsemane, from the Roman flogging that could often kill, to the crucifixion. As I read these passages about his mission and the fulfillment of his mission, I've been increasingly aware of the faithfulness of Jesus under brutal pressure. Usually my first thought about him is not his faithfulness and his obedience. Do you ever think about the obedience of Jesus? We take that for granted, don't we? Faithfulness means maintaining allegiance, constant, loyal. Faithfulness implies a, a steadfast adherence to a person, to a thing, as a, a steadfast adherence to an oath, to an obligation. Nowhere in the Gospels do we see the pressure on Jesus that we see in Gethsemane and what immediately followed. We don't see, we don't hear him speaking in other parts of the gospel like he spoke in Gethsemane. Nowhere in the gospels do we see him praying with such intensity, such pathos. Look at Luke twenty-two forty-four on your on your scripture sheet and being in agony, being in unagony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's intense. You haven't seen that. You haven't heard that previously. Matthew says it this way in Matthew 26, 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful. Look how many times he repeats this. Began to be sorrowful. And then he adds, and very heavy. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. He's not talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about he's under such agony right now. He feels like he, he, he will die. My soul is overwhelmed with misery. That's what he's saying. With depression, it is choking the life out of me. Have you heard Jesus say that? The disciples had never heard him say words like these. They had never seen him like this. There is one great question as we watch this scene. Will Jesus be faithful to his calling? Will he be obedient? We know what is we know the end of the story. We know what's coming. His disciples did not. He was there alone understanding what was coming. We're watching the faithfulness of Jesus. Under brutal pressure. First, I want you to see the faithfulness of Jesus in spite of extreme suffering. Look at verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw, a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Take this cup. What's about to happen? Take it from me. Let 
If you want to understand this, you must focus on verse 42, where he says these words, take this cup from me. What was the cup? What was the cup? The cup in scripture is usually used to allude to God's wrath and justice. I'm going to say it again. The cup in scripture usually alludes to God's wrath and to God's justice. Look at Isaiah 51, 17. It's important that you see this. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drained it to the dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. The goblet that makes men stagger. They don't stagger from being drunk. They stagger from the weight of his judgment that's in the cup. That was the cup. The goblet from which Jesus was going to drink, he would drink from it as no man ever had. Look at Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. This is Jeremiah saying, God said this to me. Take from my hand this cup. What's in the cup? With the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink. it. Justice has come. The nations have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And so what does he say then in Jer- later in Jeremiah 25, 28? Listen to what God says. This has to happen. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. Why was there no choice but to drink the cup of his wrath? Because the nations were sinful. Because they had crossed the line. They had been found. They had been weighed in the balances of God's court and found wanting. God's just people. This is what it's saying. God is just and he has promised that there is no sin that will go unpunished. No transgression. Just as there is perfection in his omniscience, perfection in his omnipotence, there is perfection in his justice. He says, you must drink it. Remember those words, we'll return to them. That was the cup that Jesus mentioned in his prayer. You say, oh, no, 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 no. He didn't drink the cup of God's wrath. Oh, yes, he did. Jesus was about to take sin upon himself. Did, do you stand and confess Jesus has taken my sin? What do you think that means? Our sin was imputed to him. It was given to him. He who knew no sin, what's it, what does Paul say? He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the idol worshiper. He became the liar. He became the thief. He became the murderer. He became the child molester. He became the rapist, the adulterer. He became the traitor, the blasphemer. He became the embezzler. He became the greedy. He became the selfish. He became the arrogant. All of that. He became all those things in the court of God, in, in God's courtroom. That was not all. Because he became all of that. Because God is perfect and God is just. God's wrath, God's judgment had to fall on him. There was no 
there was no words like we would hear or thoughts like we would think in an earthly court. That's my son. That's my son. I can't do this. No. God's judgment had to fall on him. He took the sin. He had had to take the judgment. At Calvary, God said to Jesus what he said to the nations through Jeremiah. You must drink it. You not only are guilty. But if sin is going to be atoned. you You must not only take the sin and the guilt. You must take the punishment. If you take their sin, you must suffer their hell. He was looking at himself as a sinner under the eternal judgment of God. He saw his own soul in hell. Father, Father, take this cup from me. I've used this before, but I'll use it again. I wasn't going to. But it was not only the judgment, it was the sin itself. He hated sin. Remember, Jesus was the one that said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right, right arm leads you into sin, cut it off. I mean, that, that, he, he hated sin. It, it was it reviled it. I've told you before, I, I, I don't like snakes. And I was watching a movie this week, and uh, there was this, it was... This king was disappointed in the cowardice of one of his one of his nobles, and he had him thrown in to a snake pit. Hundreds of snakes. I hate snakes. I wish I hadn't seen that scene. Somewhere it's going to come up in my dreams. I hate them. Jesus hated sin a thousand times more than I hate snakes. That was the misery of Gethsemane. Would Jesus remain on course? Would he pray, Father, take this cup? That was the real temptation of Gethsemane. To walk away. By the way, do you know what the word Gethsemane means? The word Gethsemane. Means olive press. I'm constantly amazed. I love the symbols and metaphors which God uses in unfolding this great story of His. Gethsemane, or the pressure is put on the olives and the oil comes out. What a fitting place for Jesus to be is the pressure. Brutal pressure came upon His soul. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. You must drink it. Faithfulness in spite of extreme suffering. Secondly, I want you to see faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. Look at verse 46. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He was not only saying, pray with me about what I'm about to face. But he was saying, pray for yourselves or you are in danger of being faithless. You're in danger of denying me. You're in danger of forsaking me. 
He understood they would run. The disciples didn't. The disciples had sworn they would be faithful. They would be loyal. Look at Matthew 26, 35. Peter said to him, Peter said to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. We usually focus on Peter. All of them said the same thing. We'll be with you to the end. But then you read Matthew 26, 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Luke is the only Gentile writer of the Gospels. He was not there. And in his grace, he does not speak of the disciples, the disciples as a whole, forsaking Jesus. He recorded Peter denying, but he, the disciples as a whole, he didn't. But Matthew and Mark, they were there that night. And both of them wrote about how, how they forsook Jesus, how they fled. I think Satan came to Jesus that night several times and whispered, hey, these are your core guys. These, these are guys that are with you. There's no one closer to you than these guys. And look at them. They're running. Jesus stood in that courtroom. He stood in that outer court. And Peter was there, remember? By the fire, and he was, he, you know, Peter could see what was going on, and Jesus could see him. We're going to look at that next week. Jesus heard Peter curse and swear that he didn't even know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And says, Jesus turned and looked at him. You don't think Satan was there saying, You're doing this for Peter? You're doing this for him? It's hard to be faithful in the face of unfaithfulness. Ask a wife whose husband has been unfaithful. Ask a husband whose wife has been unfaithful. Jesus did not say, I will die for sinners, but only for sinners who are faithful to me. There are some Christians that I watch and I feel unworthy to even know them because I've seen them stay faithful under tremendous pressure. When I was writing this, I thought about my friend, Ken Bennett, who started a ministry in the inner city of, of Memphis called Streets Ministry. It's been a model for inner city ministry all over the country. From all over the country, people have come to see what Ken did there. I watched him in the early days of that ministry, going into the inner city, going into the projects day after day. It, it's, it's so hard. Most people burn out involved in that kind of ministry because there's always the drugs. There's always the poverty. There's always the crime. There's always this. It, it doesn't seem to dissipate. And you can believe that after five years of really hard, hard, hard work from early in the morning until the wee hours of the next day. I don't know how Ken did it. Faithful. Faithful. Jesus, you're doing this for them. Faithfulness in spite of extreme suffering. Faithfulness in the face of unfaithfulness. 
Then you see grace under pressure. Look at what happened in the, in the, in the garden. Look at verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and knew it. Was there any sickness that Jesus encountered in the Gospels that he didn't heal? Was there any injury that he did not repair? Do you ever read of him meeting a blind man and not making him to see? All of those were grace, yes, done for sinners. But this man was his enemy, his sworn enemy. This man had come to arrest Jesus. This man was there to curse Jesus. This is different than the other miraculous healings, but he was still the great physician. He's identified as a servant of the high priest. This is one of the last testimonies to the identity of Jesus. You ever think about that? He, he got, his, got his ear cut off, bleeding profusely, head injury, and Jesus healed him. They get back to the high priest's house, and the high priest asks, the officers, how did it go? They said, no, we didn't have any trouble. His disciples ran like birds. Oh, there was one thing. One of them, you should see, there. one of them not very experienced with a sword, pulled out his sword. And he missed and he caught, he caught Malchus on the right ear. Cut him badly. Malchus, come here. Let me see your injury. Well, it's not there. Why didn't it there? Jesus healed me. By fiat, by fiat, he spoke, and my ear was restored. Do you realize every time the high priest looked at Malchus, it was a testimony to who Jesus was for the rest of his days. By the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give the name of this servant. Only John does. I think that was because it was then safe. John wrote his gospel last. Malchus was probably still alive when Matthew and Mark and Luke wrote their Gospels. He'd become a Christian, you see. And they couldn't use his name. But John, he probably had departed. And John recorded it. Grace. Jesus could have so easily said, you're my enemy. You're putting me, you're, you're going to drive the nails. But he still had grace. Those of us that struggle so hard with loving our enemies, go read that. Go read that. Jesus healing the one who'd come there to kill him. Grace under pressure. Finally, I want you to see faithfulness to the one who was worthy. Father, if you're willing, look at verse 42. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That was the key to G Jesus' faithfulness. Understand this. If you have not gotten anything thus far, I find that hard to believe. But wake up and hear this. This is the most important part. That was the key to Jesus' faithfulness. All along the way, he had said over and over again to his disciples, I have not come to do my own thing. I have come to do the will of my Father. Why was Jesus under such pressure? 
Was he worried about being faithful to Peter and John? No. Was he striving to be faithful to Israel? No. Just one thought. Where did he go when he felt the pressure? Father! Father! I read a story years ago, and I can identify with it. A young man in the city was 15, 16 years old, and he had just gotten his driver's license. He was out at some function much later than he should have been, and he was accosted by some people that wanted his billfold, by a gang that wanted his billfold, wanted his money. He gave him money, but he wouldn't give up his billfold. And he actually fought them and got beat up badly. And they asked him, they said, why didn't you give them your wallet? He said, it had my driver's license in it. Remember that? When you felt like that? You looked at it and said, that's not a reason to take a beating. Folks, Jesus went to his father. And what did he pray? Oh, Father, take this cup from me. Take it from me. And then he said, But your will be done, not mine. It was all about his father. When the chips are down, what will keep us faithful out there in the world? Faithful to wives, faithful to husbands, faithful to employers and employees, faithful to children, faithful to parents, faithful to who we say we are. It won't be because of our wives, our husbands, our children, not really. It won't be because our wives are so beautiful, our husbands so handsome. It won't be because we are so disciplined and so moral that we would never do anything like that. If we depend on these things, those things, I'll tell you, we will fail. We'll be just like the world. It's the same thing the world says. You see, faith is transcendent. The world says, well, I love my wife or I love my husband. I love my children. I love this. I love that. Yes, and that's good. A Christian says, I love my God, I love my creator, I love my sustainer, and I love my redeemer. What did Joseph say when he was faced with the temptation in Egypt? Potiphar's wife. What did he cry out? How can I do this and sin against my God? His faith was transcendent. And there in Gethsemane, as Jesus kneeled, prayed with such intensity, It was a prayer that reached into eternity. It was a transcendent faith. And the good news is, as we come to this table, and we take this cup this morning, It will not be the cup of God's wrath 
poured out on you or me. It will be the cup of God's wrath that was poured out on Jesus for us. Our hymn is most appropriate. O sacred head now wounded. Standing. O Father, it's such a great forgiveness. It's so huge, it's so immense, it's so transcendent. It's so deep, high and wide that it is a fearsome thing. It's a fearsome thing to see Jesus on the cross drinking that cup of your wrath. The cup that should have been us. O Father, we pray that there might always be a righteous fear in us, a holy fear, a good fear, for it's a fearsome thing that you did. And Father, we pray that as we go away from this table this morning, that there'll not only be that righteous reverence, that righteous fear, we pray there would be a confident faith for Christ, Son of God, has died and has risen and is at the right hand of our God interceding for us. Cause us, Father, to walk in that assurance. In Jesus' name and for his glory, O Father, for his glory. Amen.